Let's pray together. God, we praise you for your love, your steadfast love shown to us as evidenced in the person of Jesus Christ who came down from heaven as the perfect sacrifice for the sin and death that, that ruled in this realm. God, we praise you for the steadfast love, the everlasting love that does not change, that is not fickle, that is not frail like we are. God, that has never for a moment wavered. That is shown to your own and on display in everything. God, we pray this morning that we would reflect deeply upon the love that you show to us in the person of Jesus. God, it would be evident to us this morning that there is nothing that can separate us from this love if we are in Christ Jesus, if we've been joined to Jesus by faith. There is nothing on earth, there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from from this love. God, so this morning as we go to your word, God, would you impress upon us deeply through the power of your Holy Spirit, impress upon us deeply a, a better and more clear understanding of who you are. God, we thank you. We need your help now as we go to your word. God, would you provide that help even in these very moments? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Take your Bible. Turn to John chapter 12 this morning. John chapter 12, kids, ages three and four, up to not including kindergarten. You can make your way to the back. Miss Brianna's back there. She'll take you up to your classroom this morning. John chapter 12, our time this morning is going to be spent in the first 19 verses in John 12, and then we're going to move our and focus our attention to the Lord's table this morning as we participate there in that unifying, uh, unifying ordinance that Jesus instituted on the Last Supper. John chapter 12, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are still a few in the back. You can Pick up a black hardcover Bible back there and you'll find the sermon text on page 1068 in that, in that Bible. John chapter 12, I'm going to read verses 1 through 19. The Apostle John, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner from there for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bags, he used to help himself, he he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, 
but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only, to a, not only on account of, uh, of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. I have, a, I have a bit of a sweet tooth. I, I like Oreos, and like might actually even be the, the, wrong, the wrong word. I can polish off a family pack in a couple of days. I think maybe one day, if it was, well, if the situation, the circumstances were right. It's not a good thing. I feel a bit ashamed even, even, saying, even saying that to you. And if you're like me in that, if you, if you have a sweet tooth, Maybe you've stumbled across a recipe for something, say, like brownies, that in the description says guilt-free, guilt-free brownies. Like somehow these brownies would be bad for you, so you don't have to, because of the ingredients or something, the brownies that would have been bad for you, we swapped them out for other ones, and now you don't have to feel bad about eating, eating these things. Guilt-free brownies. Go ahead and eat a few more. They're guilt-free. I think one of the reasons why Christians, especially in our culture, dismiss, dismiss spending regular, consistent, personal time in God's Word and in prayer is because they feel guilty. Maybe that's you. And no, I'm not saying that you feel guilty for not doing those things. I'm not saying you feel guilty for not spending regular time in God's Word and in prayer. I'm saying that you actually feel guilty for spending time in God's word and in prayer. Maybe you feel guilty sitting down to read or pray because the laundry's piling up or there are more dishes in the, di- in the sink than you would like to admit that just need to go to the dishwasher or something or you need to fix the fence or the paperwork is piling up at the office. Maybe you've bought into this lie that seems to circulate around the church that if you're not doing something tangible or practical that has a physical result, that you're not living like Jesus wants you to live. If you're not constantly serving those who are less fortunate than you, if you're not helping a neighbor who is in crisis, or financially supporting every charitable organization that sends you a piece of mail, then are you really a Christian? I think sometimes we fall into this trap 
Maybe you would feel unproductive if you sat down to read and spent significant time in prayer. And you've bought into the idea that being unproductive is a sin. If you sat down to read your Bible and prayed, you would be unproductive, so you don't. This may not be you, but I would, I would venture to guess that many of you often feel very guilty in your lives over many different things. I think oftentimes we feel, as people, buried in guilt. And most of the time, or almost all of the time, I think it's not something that we, uh, that we think about regularly, but then all of a sudden there's this indicator that pops up in our lives or in our minds. It says, you should be doing. You should be doing. The words, you should be doing X, scroll through your mind. And then all of a sudden you feel weighed down by guilt. Maybe you look and begin to compare yourself to others that you see on social media or on the internet or just around you in your life. Christians who are passionately serving others. And you feel guilty that in that very moment you're not. You look at other Christians whose homes seem cleaner, whose businesses seem more organized, who kids seem, whose kids seem more well-behaved. And you feel guilty. You didn't put in a little more effort at home, a little more time in the office, a little more uh, consistency in your discipline, a little more quality time with your family. You feel judged by the appearance of others. And you feel guilty that you can't do that. And so, what gets the axe? Time in God's Word. Time in prayer. So that you can keep up. I think that this passage this morning in John chapter 12 gives us a good indication of what guilt-free time in God's word looks like. If we need a recipe for guilt-free time in God's word and prayer, that this passage gives us that recipe. Three major things happen in these 19 verses. Three, you, you have them in, if you're reading the ESV like I am, you have three headings here. Mary anoints the Jesus at Bethany, uh, the plot to kill Lazarus, and the triumphal entry. Those three things happen. Mary, Lazarus' sister, anoints Jesus' feet, and then the chief priests and the Pharisees plot to kill Lazarus. In addition to Jesus, we saw that they were plotting to kill Jesus last week. And then the triumphal entry, this is the the events of Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday we celebrated um, several weeks ago. At the heart of each of these three things, though, these are, I think, meant to be taken together. Sometimes those headings in our Bible, those aren't inspired. God didn't write those. Um, uh, the, The editor of your Bible wrote those headings. They're helpful, but sometimes they cause us to section these out in ways that maybe we wouldn't because I think that these three three sections, these 19 verses are designed to be taken together because at the heart of each of these sections is a growing, a growing contrast that we've seen escalating throughout our time in John's gospel. The growing contrast is this, two things. First, those whose hearts are hard towards Jesus grow more resistant to him the more they are exposed to him. Those whose hearts are hard towards Jesus go more resistant to him, the more they are exposed to him. Second thing, 
This is the contrast. Those who believe in Jesus are continually leaving everything to follow Jesus. Those who believe are continually enduring great personal cost to follow Jesus. We're going to tie in that idea of the guilt-free time and God's word and prayer at the end. But the, the, the ingredient, there's just one simple ingredient. There's one ingredient for understanding devotion to Jesus Christ and personal worship. And that's just simply knowing Jesus Christ. The ingredient that we need is to know Jesus Christ more. Knowing who he is and knowing who he is specifically for us. For he, who he is specifically for you. So what I want to do is just walk through these three sections. Verses 1 through 8 and then 9 through 11 and then 12 through 19. And unpack them together. And see how this works itself out through our time. So the first section is, we're going to just title it, Mary's Worship and Judas's Self-Righteous Response. Mary's Worship and Judas's Self-Righteous Response. Okay, so we learn this setting here right at the beginning in verse 1. Six days before Passover, Jesus is in Bethany. You'll remember that that's where Lazarus was, where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus then went away, back away from Bethany, but now he's making his way towards Jerusalem. Um, and Bethany is very close to Jerusalem, just a couple miles away. Lazarus is there around the table, standing as evidence of Jesus' divine power, his life-giving power uh, to, uh, to raise the dead. Lazarus is there. He's eating around the table with Jesus. Martha, Lazarus' sister, is serving, as we know from Luke chapter 10. She knows she, that's what she does. She serves. And then Mary, Mary, what she does in verse 3 is the hinge of these verses. The hinge of these verses. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now in the ancient world, washing feet was common practice because you wore sandals and it was dusty and gross and you had nasty feet. So you go into someone's house and usually a woman in the house or a servant would wash the feet of the guests. This is common practice. Um, and this is an important thing, even culturally. We see, it, um, we see that God-honoring widows would wash the feet of the saints. Paul tells this to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 10, verse 10. And then just in one chapter from where we are right now, Jesus is actually going to get down, assume the posture of a servant, in John chapter 13, he's going to wash the feet of his disciples. So this is common practice. What about to happen here is common practice with a couple of exceptions. There's a couple of things that make these verses unique to what would be experienced typically when you walked into the house uh, as a guest, into a house as a guest. So two things that make this action unique. Um, first, Mary's actions show dutiful service to Jesus. But even more than that, the dutiful service would be to wash his feet. But, but even more than that, loving gratitude for what Jesus had done. Uh, Mary had learned at the feet of Jesus. She had spent time hearing him teach, hearing him, hearing him, uh, hearing him uh, give instruction for life. 
watching him perform signs. She had watched him call her brother out of the grave. Now she desired to worship Jesus. And she believed that he was the Christ. She believed that he was the Messiah. She believed that he was the one sent from God. Mary's actions show loving gratitude for what Jesus had done. But the second thing that makes this unique is that this worship, this devotion, this loving gratitude that she puts on display for Jesus came at great personal, great personal cost. A pound of ointment uh, made from pure nard was expensive. Judas then, Judas knows how much it is. He says that it's 300 denarii. And a denarius is about a day's wage, about how much money you would make. In, so this is 300 days worth of work that, 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 that Mary pours out here on the feet of Jesus. She doesn't hit his, his feet with like a 399 bottle of Axe body spray. This is, this is serious stuff. This is 300 days of work tied up into what she does here. That's a great personal cost that she assumes. A pound of ointment was a lot. And we're told that it's a lot because the whole house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Both the quality and the quantity were very high. Then what happens? Judas comments. Judas comments. He says, why not give this to the poor? It's kind of a judgy thing to say. But we're told John tells us his motives. Now remember the Apostle John, when he's writing this, he's very old. And when these events happened, he was very young. John has had essentially a lifetime to think about these events and to understand them, understand them more. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he tells us the motives of Judas in verse 6. He says, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. When we, when we live in unrepentant sin, like Judas is living in unrepentant sin here, we're always trying to look to balance the scales. When that guilt comes down upon us, what we're trying to do is balance the scale. How can I not feel so badly about, in Judas's case, being a thief? Judas was dipping into the financial reserves for Jesus and his disciples. He was stealing. He was directly breaking one of God's ten commandments that came down on a tablet of stone. In Moses' hand. He was personally convicted. But rather than turn from his sin and repent and move the other direction, he just tries to make himself look better. The Proverbs say the guilty flee when no one pursues. No one accused Judas of anything. And yet here he stands trying to make himself look better. Because he knows in his heart that he sinned against a holy God. He sinned against Jesus Christ, the one sent from God. 
He says, sure, I'm stealing, but I want everyone to believe that I'm doing good. So I'm going to toss it out there. Well, why don't we give this to the poor? Why don't we give this away? I want to know, I want everyone to know how upright I am, how righteous I am. And I'm hoping that kind of covers up my sinful actions in the past. Make a statement that on the outside seems pious and righteous. But this isn't the righteousness that we need. A righteousness tainted by our own sin. This is self-righteous behavior. It was no kind of righteousness at all. Judas broke the moral law, but he could not earn righteousness by appearing to be concerned for the poor. Many times we're, at, we're driven to act charitably because of guilt. I need to give these people or serve these, give to these people or serve to these people because I've made mistakes and I need to make up for these mistakes. But the proper response isn't to turn over a new leaf or to get back on the right track. Because the solution to our past sin isn't to do more good in the present and the future. That's never the solution. The solution to our past sin isn't to do more good in the present or future. That's what we'd call self-justification. I seek to self-justify. I seek to justify myself and my past sin by uh, making myself look or appear righteous or doing what would be considered righteous in the eyes of others in order for them to think well of me. Self-justification is attempting to be forgiven and accepted based on one's own righteous actions. If you're seeking to self-justify, if you're seeking to self-justify, then you're seeking to earn God's favor by righteous, through righteous activity stemming from inside you. It doesn't work. It didn't work for Judas. It doesn't work for us. We must not seek to justify ourselves, but rather look to Jesus as the only one who can justify us. You and I need to be justified, but we can't be justified by something inside. It doesn't come from our own righteous action. It comes from Jesus' righteous action. He was perfect. He never sinned. Perfectly obedient to God. And then he offers us that righteousness. So what Judas's mistake was is that he looked at the situation and he said, we should do this thing. We should, be, we should act more charitably in order that he would appear to have something that he did not possess. In order to put on display that there was something inside of him that wasn't actually there. What he needed to do was repent and turn to Jesus Christ. We need to seek to be justified, but not from ourselves. Rather, we must seek Jesus Christ. He earned God's favor through his perfect life. And this righteousness doesn't come from inside you, but from outside of you. It's given to you. You are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ when you repent and believe. It comes to you from Jesus Christ. He freely offers it to you. So Judas felt the weight of his guilt. 
And he tries to self-justify by making himself look charitable. When he should have repented, trusted Jesus to provide him with the righteousness that he needed. And so in light of Judas's self-righteous response, Jesus calls it out. He says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And then he says, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And so Mary's actions are good actions, worship and devotion poured out for Jesus at great personal cost to her. Jesus is worthy of worship. He's worthy of enduring great personal cost to ourselves as we follow him. Is Jesus saying that the caring for the poor doesn't matter? Absolutely not. But devotion to Jesus must be the priority. Otherwise, otherwise, caring for the poor and the marginalized will be driven from our guilt and our attitude of self-righteousness like it was for Judas here. So the first thing that we see here in these verses is Mary's worship, which is good, which is right, according to Jesus. And then Judas' attempts to justify himself. But then as we move into the next section, into verses 9 through 11, we see the chief priest's murderous descent. Now this just keeps going on. They just keep digging themselves a bigger hole. And we're, we see in the next few verses that uh, the more clearly that those whose heart, hearts are hard towards Jesus grow more resistant to him the more they are exposed to him. So we see that here in how they respond to Lazarus in particular. Lazarus, who's sitting there eating around the table with Jesus, is the evidence of Jesus' work. He stood as proof of who Jesus was. And you remember back in verse 53 of chapter 11, the chief priests and the Pharisees are making plans to put Jesus to death. But will that really end the stir that Jesus has made? On account of Jesus, and then now on account of Lazarus, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So the religious leadership, the chief priests and the Pharisees, decide that they need to eliminate Jesus and Lazarus and the evidence. They need to clean up the whole scene. That means they have to kill Lazarus. Lazarus stood as the evidence that Jesus is who he claims to be. The chief priests and Pharisees saw the evidence that Jesus is from God and that in him was life. Let me say that again. The the chief priests and the Pharisees saw the evidence that Jesus is from God and that in him, they saw it before their very eyes. But you'll remember at the beginning of our time, Those whose hearts are hard towards Jesus grow more resistant to him the more they are exposed to him. They continue to dig a deeper and deeper hole. Maybe you're here this morning and you've spent a lot of time in church during your life. You've spent a lot of time hearing about the person of Jesus. But maybe you're resistant. 
Maybe you're resistant to him. You'd, you'd rather just live your way. And in your mind, it just doesn't matter what you're going to do next today if Jesus is alive or if he's dead. And kind of, if you think about it, if he's alive, that poses a lot more challenges and problems for you. You'd have to admit the good in your life isn't a result of something that you've done. It's a result of something bigger than you. You would have to admit that the difficulty in your life might actually have a purpose. You would have to admit that you're not a victim of just time and chance and some oppressive, impersonal universe force that bears down on you. If Jesus is alive, you may be here this morning and have been resisting Jesus, and if Jesus is alive, then your way of life is threatened. It would be threatened because you would have to submit to a king that isn't you. You would have to consider what it means to live according to the words of someone who isn't you. You would have to learn what God says is best and not just what you feel is best. You may be thinking or even living as if Jesus is dead and saying to yourself, that would at least be not disruptive to my life. But what Jesus does here and what's evidenced in the way that the chief priests and the Pharisees respond to Jesus over and over and over again, they feel the tidal wave coming. They know Jesus is about to flip the whole thing on its head. Everything is going to be turned upside down in a few short days. Their culture, their way of life, the global political scene, all of history was about to be overturned. Again, the tidal wave, they felt it coming. It was spotted off the shore and the chief priests and Pharisees thought they could slow it down. They thought they could slow it down. But how do you slow down a tidal wave? How do you slow down what God had planned from eternity past to bring to fruition? At the end of this week. But not only was the global scene in human history about to be disrupted. That might be the easy part to swallow. The hard part to swallow is that our lives, our hearts, what we love, how we live, it was all about to be upended as well. If the chief priests and Pharisees put Jesus in the grave and he didn't walk out, nothing would be disrupted. Go on about your business. But everything was. Jesus is alive and he's still upsetting and disrupting our internal and external status quo to this day. So the chief priests and the Pharisees want to eliminate Lazarus, get rid of the evidence, murder the guy, clean up the the scene and walk away and just keep living as they were. Not an option. But then we see the events of Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. And this is what we're going to call the crowd's acknowledgement. So we have Mary's worship, Judas's self-righteous response, and then we have the murderous descent of the chief priest's and Pharisees, and now we have the acknowledgement of the people, the acknowledgement of the crowd. So the next day is Sunday. This is one week before 
Jesus would walk out of the grave, and Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and John tells us here, it's to fulfill what was written in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Sing aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the people here acknowledge Jesus as their king. They like this idea. This guy is, just a few days earlier, called a guy out of the grave. He was dead, and now he was dead for four days, and he's even started to smell bad, and he came out. And Jesus, Jesus has done many other signs. He's done many other miracles. And the people like the idea now of Jesus as their king. And in verse 13, they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And the reason they say this is recorded in verse 18. John uses helpful language here. He says, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. Again, that sign being the raising of Lazarus. Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead caused people to push to make Jesus king. But, but Jesus' kingship, despite the acknowledgement that he is king, Jesus' kingship wasn't from them. It didn't, it didn't come from the people. It was from God. So if you ever thought to yourself, why did Jesus not just take the throne here? Why did Jesus not just top and just say, okay, here we go, we're done? He would have just assumed the throne here if it was an earthly, temporary one. But if it was an eternal, everlasting, everlasting kingdom, he would have to wait until next Sunday. On Friday, he would die. Sunday, walk out of the grave, never to die again. If Jesus took the throne here on Palm Sunday, he would, it would have been earthly and temporary. One that would have well been squashed the very fears of the chief priests and Pharisees that said, if, if we draw the eye of Rome, they'll come and stomp us. And if Jesus assumes the throne here, that very well might be what happened. Jesus had his eye on a completely different enemy though, sin and death. The one that stood in between him and the throne of David. The throne that is next to the Father's right hand. The one that God promises that will last forever. That's the throne that Jesus would sit down upon. And so the events of Palm Sunday prompt the Pharisees to say what they do in verse 19. Look at how... Look at how tired they sound. Just how worn out by this. You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. These men are desperate now. They're, they're desperate. Their problems have grown so big. What do we do? We're going to lose everything. The Pharisees are watching Jesus continue to have people pledge themselves to him. They, but they couldn't, they can't act now in the middle of the day. First day of the week, they can't say, okay, just like, go get them. Rather, the Pharisees will have to wait for the cover of darkness later in the week. So, we started our time thinking about the recipe for guilt-free time 
and God's word and prayer. And the answer could largely be found in those first eight verses. Knowing Jesus Christ, knowing who he is, and knowing who he is for us, for you. If Judas had truly believed that Jesus was who he said he was, if he had truly known that Jesus, um, the, the Jesus that sat around the table with, with him, he would have never questioned Mary's actions and devotion. We, we, need the, we need the same thing. If you felt weighed down by guilt, the only antidote is to know Jesus. To know Jesus more, devotion to Jesus Christ, knowing him through time in the Bible, spending time in prayer, is guilt-free because of who he is. The antidote to guilt isn't doing more. I like to do this. I like to fill up my schedule so full. Our family is in a season of just in, intensity. It's the word hunkered down, trying to finish a house, trying to do a lot of things. I owe every one of you about six thank you notes. I'm sorry you've gotten none of them. But see, that's where my guilt comes in. I think to myself, I, if I would do more, if I would do more, then I would be able to satiate. I would be able to uh, get rid of this guilt that I feel that's weighing me down. But the antidote to guilt is not doing more, but understanding what Jesus has done. Romans 8.1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus. When your flesh seeks to condemn you for not doing, you must treat it with the truth that Jesus said, it is finished. He didn't say, I got part of it done, and I'll pick up the rest later. He didn't say, tomorrow seems like a pretty good day to polish it up. He said, on the cross, it is finished. When your flesh seeks to condemn you for not doing it, treat it with that truth. You will never finish doing laundry. You will never finish mowing your lawn. Guess what? The grass grows. You'll never finish shoveling the driveway. You'll never finish the paperwork at the office. Because guess what? There's a new project in your superior's mind that they want you to do and execute in about half the time that it takes to actually do it. More will be required next week when the next project gets underway, when the next time the weather takes an unexpected turn, the next time we get more rain or more snow or whatever, there is always more to do. And when you feel guilty for not doing that, the antidote isn't to do more, it's to trust in the one who said it is finished. Because of what Jesus accomplished through his perfect sacrifice, because Jesus is God, because Jesus is the light of the world, because he's the bread of life, because he is the, the, the resurrection in the life, because he is the word incarnate, because he's the good shepherd, 
because he is the door of the sheep, because he is the way, the truth, and the life, and the true vine, and everything that Jesus says about who he is to us in his word, because he is all of those things, there is therefore no guilt for those who are in Christ when spending time with Jesus in his word and prayer. Mary doesn't get the opportunity, but she doesn't respond and say, oh shoot, I should have. I should have sold this and given it to the poor. Jesus Christ is infinitely worthy of our praise and our worship and our devotion. There is therefore no condemnation when spending time with Jesus in His Word and in prayer. We have this picture of a God who wags his finger at us when we are not doing. We have this picture of this God who stands above us and says to us, you guys could have been doing something, but you just sat there. As if God's primary motivation, motivating tactic is guilt. But the Bible is clear. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you feel the pressure of the laundry and the lawn and the paperwork, Jesus' work is finished and is enough for you. Because this is all true, we can pour out devotion to Jesus like Mary does here, even at great personal cost to ourselves. If we continue to feel guilty for spending time with Jesus, if we continue to feel guilty for spending time with Jesus in the Word and in prayer, it might be because He's not our God, but because something else is. That's something oftentimes in our culture is work productivity. If those things are our God, we will do what the chief priests and the Pharisees do in the next few verses. We will seek to eliminate Jesus from our lives. Maybe not like kill him. We can't, we can't get him. He's at the Father's right hand right now. But we'll plot to eliminate him and the evidence of his work in our lives by claiming it as our own. We will live like he and his work are meaningless for us. We will work to highlight our accomplishments, pushing off what he has done to the side, and spend, in, instead of speaking of and living in light of his. But like Mary, Jesus is our greatest treasure. And so growing in our relationship with him must be our single greatest pursuit. Pouring out worship and devotion to him must be our single greatest pursuit in this life. So what we're going to do now is behold the excellencies of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. As we move together towards the table, take into consideration Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you any place where you have been 
burdened by guilt and been motivated by guilt this last week or this month or year or decade. And then look to the reality that Jesus Christ, broken body, shed blood, was given for you to remove that as far as the east is from the west. You were guilty. You stood guilty before a holy God. And God, with the great love with which he loved us, sent Jesus into the world to die for us so that we might be justified before a holy God, freely forgiven, given the righteousness of Christ, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and adopted as sons and daughters of God. This is good news. Where you have felt guilty this week, release it. Understand that God in Jesus Christ has removed it from you. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Judas would betray Jesus. Judas self-justified the sin that he found himself entrenched in when he needed to be justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. The very action that he took against Jesus was the very action that could forgive him. The very action that we've taken this week where we've thought, I'm pretty good, I've done it for myself this time is the very action that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ pays for. So as we come together, and as we approach the table this morning, remember the sacrifice of Jesus that drowns our guilt, that removes it from us, that takes it away. And pour out your worship and your devotion to Jesus in these moments, the perfect sacrifice. If you've been with us here at Buffalo City Church, you know that we take the Lord's Supper together regularly. Just a couple of reminders for you. Um, When you're ready in your heart to to receive the elements, just make your way down to the table and pick those up. Um, The bread and the juice are are both there for you. If you have not made a profession of faith, if you're not sure what it means to trust Jesus, if you're not sure what his sacrifice means for you, then this time just take it. Spend time reflecting on what's been said this morning, um, but do not approach the table if you're not sure where you stand with, with God this morning. Final thing I would say, parents, if you've got kids in here, allow them to participate if they've made a profession of faith as well. But, uh, but if, you, if, you'd li- if, you'd, uh, if, if that is yet to happen, just go ahead and use this as an opportunity to continue to share the gospel with your children so that they might understand more fully what it means to be a child of God. I'm going to pray. The worship team is going to come forward. And then when you're prepared in your heart, go ahead and receive the elements.
God, we praise you this morning for the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That the guilt that we find ourselves being motivated by so often is removed from us because of Jesus' work. We no longer have to justify and try to balance the scales by making ourselves appear better than we are. God, but we can freely admit that we are sinners. We can freely admit that we have violated your law, that we, in fact, are not holy as you are holy. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus, you have made us those things. You have made us holy. You have made us righteous. You have given us freely all that we need to approach you this morning and to be brought into your family. God, so as we receive these elements, the broken body represented in the bread, the shed blood represented in the juice, God, would we remember God, and would we worship, would we pour out our devotion to you this morning? God, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.